great to see you all here tonight. Take your Bibles, amen. Let's open them up to the book of Revelation. The one book that we are given a promise that if we read this book, we will be blessed. And that's what it says in the book of Revelation. We have been studying this book. We've talked about how John the Apostle, last apostle alive, exiled to this island called Patmos, exiled there by the Roman emperor Domitian. And he is there because he is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he is imprisoned, working hard on this island. Uh, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, appears to him. We've talked about that. And Christ begins to dictate to John seven letters. He says, write this down, son, and I want this to go out to seven churches of Asia Minor. We talked about how these churches in the the first few chapters of Revelation, these are real churches. They are actual churches in John's day. And yet these letters to these churches contain truth that is applicable and beneficial to churches all across history, including this one right here, the Lamb's Chapel in Burlington, North Carolina. And so we get to benefit from these words, but seven letters to seven churches. And we looked first a few weeks ago at the letter to the church at Ephesus. And that was the church, you recall, that had left its first love. The gospel had grown cold in their heart. Boy, may that never be the case with this church. You don't ever want the love of Christ and his gospel to grow cold because that can open up the door for so much decline uh, in, a, in the life of a church. And then we looked at the letter to the church at a place called Smyrna. And we said that Smyrna, that church, was a church that had undergone severe persecution. They'd endured uh, terrible, terrible hardship. And today we are looking at another church that has endured some persecution in its past. It's a church in a place called Pergamum. Pergamum. And they have not only persecution in the rearview mirror, but they've got a legacy of faithfulness that they can look back on. And they are enjoying looking back on that. And they're clinging to the examples of faithfulness in the past, while at the same time they are seeking to embrace worldliness in their present, to embrace pagan culture that now surrounds them. They want the best of both worlds. Are there churches like that today? I believe that there are. And so uh, we're going to see similarities in this church to churches that we see today. And we're going to walk through this line by line. I want you to bow with me one more time. Let's ask God to bless our time in his word tonight. Heavenly Father, would you guide us as we read the words here in the book of Revelation? They're your words. You spoke them to John that he might transmit them to churches in his day, but also to us right here, right now. And I just pray that we will glean an example Uh, of what to do and of what not to do. And we ask for this by your favor and by your illumination of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start as we do often with these letters by looking at the introduction here. And in this introduction, we're going to see in your notes the Lord's character. We're going to see his character represented. Now, whenever you get an official letter in the mail, the first thing that you look at, what? What is it? You just tear it open and start reading it? You want to know who it's from. Who sent me this letter? By what authority are they saying these things to me, especially if it's a bill? You want to know who the heck is sending this to me. And so 
in these letters, Christ is establishing from the get-go his character, his authority, and he, in each letter, establishes a different aspect of his character with relevance to the particular church that he's writing to. And you may remember with Ephesus, he, he started off and he introduced himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. To the letter of the church at Smyrna, he, he said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the one who uh, died and rose again. And that had special significance for that church because they were, many of them, losing their lives. So to get a letter from one who died and rose again, well, that meant a whole lot. And here we're going to see how he addresses uh, this letter, how he introduces himself. Look at verse 12. It says, And to the angel... And we've pointed out that's referring to the messenger of the church, which is the pastor. To the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. A two-edged sword. This is the shortest description of Jesus in the book of Revelation. We're going to see this sword, this double-edged sword, later on in Revelation 19.15 when it says this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And so what this says of Christ in this introduction, in your notes, is that Christ is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. Uh, in the Roman Empire, the sword was the, the symbol of might and of power. And in Pergamum, you had the Roman proconsul. He lived right there in the city, and his symbol that was known throughout that city, was a sword. Uh, and so the mention of this sword right here is really just a reminder to this church who is really in charge. He's saying, you need not fear Rome. You need to fear me. They are nothing to be afraid of. I am the one who has authority. I am the one who is coming to judge. I am coming again. And I have a sword. Uh, that's not why he came the first time. When Christ came the first time, he did not come to make war. He did not come to judge. He came in peace. But the second time, he's bringing a sword. Second time, he's bringing a sword. We've got to remember that about Christ. A lot of us gloss that over when we think about Jesus, that he is a judge. We gloss that over, that he is someone who is coming to take authority and to judge and to bring a sword and to do battle. And often we've got this image of Christ, and I think that it's been uh, perhaps uh, perpetuated over the years by art and by culture. We've all got this picture in our heads. We've seen this image of Jesus with, you know, flowing locks, and he looks rather delicate and meek and mild, and sometimes he's got a lamb draped across his shoulder. Why? I think we've even used that image uh, at the Lamb's Chapel in the past, and it's not an inaccurate picture of Christ. He is meek, and he is mild. Uh, scripture talks about him being a shepherd, and so that picture is a beautiful picture, and it's an apt picture, but it is not an exclusive picture of Christ. And that's not the picture that's in view right here. He's saying, I'm coming to judge I am judge, jury, and executioner, and the sword is the word of his mouth. It says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what kind of sword is referenced in Revelation. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we, we walked through the, the, the letter to the Ephesian church uh, on Sundays here, months back, and we saw that Paul said that our enemy is not flesh and blood. 
It's an unseen enemy. How do you do battle with an unseen spiritual enemy? You don't, you don't use physical means, do you? You use spiritual means. You put on the armor of God, right? A shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, boots of the preparation of the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, all this. And what else? What do you fight with? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so this introduction establishes his authority And then per the pattern of all his letters, he moves forward from that introduction and he begins to to diagnose the situation. And in your notes, we're going to see this church's circumstances. They have a situation going on here. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Very interesting line right there. I know where you dwell. I would underline I know. Is there anything? You guys believe that our God, that Jesus Christ knows everything? You believe that? Is there anything he does not know? No, we pray and we tell him things, but do we tell him things because he, he doesn't know? No, we, we, we tell him things because it's good for us to know that he knows. And so he is omniscient and he says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And that line, where Satan's throne is, that makes me think of where I used to live in California, you know? and Not, not because it was all evil. I lived in Modesto, wonderful place, wonderful people. But man, in the summertime, it was hotter than you know where. We'd have, you're like, it's hot here, Pastor Scott. Listen, I know it's humid and all that, but we would have 10 days in a row of triple-digit weather in Modesto. I'm just telling you, man, you can hear the sun. It's like... You're like, are we supposed to be here? Should I be smelling sizzling? Is that appropriate? I don't know. But he says, I know where you live, you Pergamene church. You live where Satan's throne is. What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to this being a very dark place. This is a dark place. From Pergamum, uh, paganism, uh, idolatry, heathenism, it would flow from there to all of Asia. Last week we talked about Smyrna. They had Caesar worship that was prominent in Smyrna. That was a dictate of of the Roman Empire that once a year you had to burn incense. You had to make a sacrifice to Caesar and thereby proclaim him to be God. And so that was the case in Pergamum as well, but that's not all. In addition to that, in Pergamum there was a temple there that was dedicated to a god, small g, a god of the Roman pantheon named Asclepius. Asclepius, okay? And he was known as the god of healing. And all the statues and images of Asclepius depicts this guy with a staff, and entwined around that staff was a snake, a serpent. And so he was a deity associated with snakes and healing. And so in John's day, what you would do if you were of the Greek pagan world and you were sick, you had some health problems, you would come to Pergamum. It was a destination for healing. It was the Mayo Clinic of its day. And you would go to that temple of Asclepius and you would lie down on the floor at night and supposedly they would unleash all of these serpents into the temple on the floor there and they would slither all over your body and crawl over you, and you would be healed. And probably what would happen is you'd get freaked out, and you'd sprint out of there and feel rejuvenated, you know. And people would go, oh, he's feeling better. He's been healed, you know. Uh, But the coiled snake was the symbol 
of this temple and this god, Asclepius, the god of healing. And you know, to this day, the coiled snake remains a symbol of healing. You ever seen this image right here that we have on the screen? Take a look. That look familiar? You see that, right? You see it on doctor's cards and on insurance literature and such. And, and uh, Asclepius, that comes from Asclepius. That, that staff with the snakes around it, uh, that's called the rod of Asclepius. That's what it's called. You can look it up. And the word scalpel comes from Asclepius. Has to do with, with medicine and healing. And possibly this whole thing, uh, you could take Mr. Snake down now, but possibly this whole thing came from a corruption of the Old Testament story back in Numbers. Moses, uh, and, and he was leading the Israelites through the wilderness. And you recall there was an incident, there was an episode where they were being attacked by venomous snakes. And so Moses had fashioned this bronze serpent that he attached to a pole and he would raise that pole up and anyone who looked upon that elevated serpent would be healed of their snake bites. And so this could be a corruption of that instance. And you even see a correlation to Christ with regard to that story in, in the New Testament. In John, I think it's John chapter 3, Jesus says, you know, and as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he was talking about being raised up on the cross, being crucified. And so we know as Christians that when you look upon Christ and his sacrifice and what he did and you trust it and you receive it by faith, what happens? You are healed. By his stripes we are healed. And raised up just like Moses in the wilderness here Christ uh, represents healing. And the pagan world, what this shows us is that the pagan world has always sought to corrupt the things of God. And they worshipped many false deities in Pergamum, not the least of which was the greatest god in the Greek pantheon, the god Zeus. And there was, on a ledge jutting out from the Acropolis there at Pergamum, there was this magnificent altar of Zeus. And it was the most famous altar in the whole world. It was just this massive structure. It was 100 feet square. It was 40 feet tall. And around the base of this altar, there was this impressive, it was the most impressive example of sculpture uh, of the ancient world at that time. And it was this base relief depicting the battle between the, the Greek gods and the Titans. And it's just this magnificent Magnificent thing. And here's a little story about that altar. Uh, in the 1800s, Greek, excuse me, German, German archaeologists traveled to Pergamum and they began to excavate the Acropolis there at Pergamum and they uncovered this altar. And they actually transported the altar of Zeus to Germany. And did you know that today in Germany at a place called the Pergamon Museum, you can see the altar of Zeus. And here is a picture of the altar of Zeus. That's what it looks like right there. And I want you to notice something. As you look at that picture, I want you to notice it looks a little bit like a throne. You can almost see a big old dude just sitting right there with his arms on those outcroppings there. And what does Jesus say? He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And many scholars believe that Christ was, in fact, referring uh, to the most famous altar in history, this, this altar of Zeus. And he's calling this thing Satan's throne. And I think that that is significant because, you know, if you're not worshiping Christ, who are you worshiping? 
If you're worshiping any other God, my friends, you are worshiping Satan himself. He is the one who demands worship. It's what he has always wanted. He desires, he craves worship. And he has deceived this entire city. They think they're worshiping Caesar. They think they're worshiping Asclepius. They think they're worshiping Zeus. They are worshiping Satan. Now, I want to tell you something about that that altar, that picture that I showed you. There was a man who, who attended the opening day of the Pergamon Museum there in Berlin. And it was a guy by the name of Albert Speer. And Albert Speer happened to be the official architect for the Nazi party. It opened in the 1930s. And so uh, he, he went to that opening and he had been tasked with designing uh, the rally grounds at Nuremberg. And so specifically, he was to design a special podium from which Adolf Hitler would, would spew his propaganda. And so he walks into this museum and he looks at the altar of Zeus and he says, that's it. That's the look. That's the design. And so he designs a near replica of the altar of Zeus. And it's just, it's just pretty sobering to imagine that 2,000 years after Jesus, through John, talks about the city where Satan's throne is, that one of the most evil men in history, Adolf Hitler, would stand atop a near replica of that very altar and spew hatred. And this tells us something, and it's, it's this in your notes, that Satan always has strongholds in this world. He always has a stronghold in this world. Pergamum was just such a stronghold. You might ask somebody, where, where does Satan dwell? And they might say, hell. And we've talked about this before, that people just think that Satan's just hanging out down in hell. That's where his crib is. You know, he's just, that's his hangout. He likes it down there. Listen, he does not want to be in hell any more than you or I would want to be in hell. Hell was created for him, but it was a place of punishment. It's a place of torment. So demons don't want to be there. Satan doesn't want to be there. And so where is he now? He's on the earth. When he was kicked out of heaven, he did not go down to hell and just hang out. He didn't want to be there. He came to the earth. Okay, And he is active and he is on the earth right now. He is alive and well, as Hal Lindsey says, and he is present on planet earth now he's not omnipresent you understand he's not like god he can only be in one place at a time and it may well be that in john's day his primary base of operations was in the city right here the city called pergamum and so from there wherever satan is that is that is the place from which he will oversee all of his demonic forces and scripture gives us insight as to the rank and the file and the organization of demonic power we looked at that a little bit when we studied ephesians and we know that there are demonic outposts uh, all over the world where satan's minions are at work and it just seems like we see that play out every week. We know that Satan's forces are busy. Is that easy to tell when you watch the news and you see the things that men do to one another? You see the loss of life. You see the, the brutality. You see the, 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 the scheming, the conniving, the wickedness of man. Our enemy is real and he is at work and he wants us to be in total derision. And this, I believe, Pergamum was a seat of power in John's day. And I, I think that his seat of power may have changed over the centuries. I'm sure that it has. I don't think he's probably operating from Pergamum anymore, as it's just old ruins at this point. Uh, but it may well have been that in the 1930s, his seat of power was, in fact, in, in Berlin. 
He may have been where, the, where Satan's throne, the altar of Zeus, relocated to. That, that seems to make sense uh, with Nazism in vogue at that time. After that, he probably moved around from place to place. Where is he today? I have no idea. I don't know where he's operating from. Could be anywhere. Maybe you've got a few ideas. But Pergamum certainly was a dark, dark place. And the Lord's going to go on here, and he will recognize in this dark place some circumstances. He's going to recognize that in the middle of that, there is at least something to commend this church for. There's some good news. There's, there's some praise in order. And so we're going to look now at the Lord's commendation. And he says in verse 13, Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You see, even in a place as dark as Pergamum, there are some faithful people. I mean, I, you know, even, even Sodom and Gomorrah, there was, there was one righteous man. And God would have stayed his hand for that person. But here in Pergamum, we've got some faithful people. And there's one guy that's mentioned by Christ. His name is Antipas. Now, we don't know a lot about him. He may have been the pastor of that church for all that we know, but we know from tradition that he was called to recant his faith, and he would not do it. And so he stood his ground. And history tells us that they took Antipas and they placed this man inside a hollowed-out bronze statue of a bull. And this bull stood on the altar of Zeus. And they lit a fire underneath that bronze statue of a bull, and it became a roaring flame, and tradition tells us that Antipas literally roasted to death for his faith. And the word used here to describe him, my faithful witness, that word witness in the original Greek is martus, martus, we get our word martyr, martyr from that. And so Antipas became a martyr, and the people of John's day knew who Antipas was, what Antipas did, that he was, was literally cooked to death for his faith. And I want you to consider something, that 2,000 years after Antipas was roasted, was incinerated, you got this monster of humanity later in the 1930s, 40s at this point, Adolf Hitler, he would stand atop a replica of that very altar where Antipas lost his life. And what would he call for eventually but the incineration of an entire people? He would call for the incineration of the Jews, God's people. And it was a, it's, just, it's just a reminder of the darkness of humanity that's always been among us. But I want you to see something in your notes. is that God honors faithfulness against all odds. Is that true? He honors faithfulness against all odds. No matter what, his desire is for you to stand as firm as Antipas did. This guy, his name, Antipas, you know what it means? It means antipas. It means against all. Against all. And this might have been, maybe this was a name that Christ gave him. I don't know if it was his actual name. Maybe Jesus gave him this name, Antipas, because of his faithfulness. You ever, you ever feel like you're standing against all? You ever feel like you're alone against the whole world? You feel that way? Well, you are. Is that encouraging? You are. You are standing against the world. Now, you're not alone. You're not alone because Christ, Christ is with you. Now, he said, don't be afraid. If the world hates you, just know it hated me first. But 
What? I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And so you need to know you are not alone. You are facing the whole world, but you're not alone. When Stephen was stoned, he was not alone. When Smyrna faced persecution, they were not alone. When, when, uh, when uh, uh, Antipas faced death on the altar there and was roasted alive, he was not in that fire alone. And you are not alone either when you face opposition. We all need to know that. First Peter tells us, verse, verse 14 of chapter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessed? Yes. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Man, do we need that perspective when times get difficult? We need that perspective when we are insulted for our testimony? Absolutely. Verse 16 says, if, you, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. It's a glory to struggle, to suffer for God, whatever it is. You know, James says, uh, when you encounter various trials, count it all glory, count it all joy. When we lose, you know, in our, in our world, you know, we think we're being persecuted. I would say not compared to Smyrna, not compared to Antipas, right? We don't face that kind of thing. Now, we do incrementally see some Christian liberties come under attack little by little. Should we speak to those issues? I believe that's appropriate, absolutely. But I'll tell you what, when those liberties start to be unraveled a little bit at a time, you know what? I grieve for America, but I don't grieve for the church. I don't grieve for the church. I'm not afraid of persecution in whatever form it may take, and neither should you be. Okay, because historically the church has thrived in persecution. And so we see this commendation here and we move on. And now I want you to see the church's compromise. They've been commended. And now Jesus is going to get down to the nitty gritty because the Pergamene uh, church has gotten into a little bit of trouble. Here's what's happening. We know there's been persecution going on. It's not working. It's never worked. Persecution has never, ever worked in the history of the church. It always grows. It always thrives. Satan tries to crush it, tries to squash it. It doesn't work. Uh, He tries to stomp it out. The flame of the church, the sparks just fly out to the side and ignite new flame. And so persecution does not work. And so he says, I'm not going to come. He changes his strategy. I'm not going to come as a roaring lion at this church. I'm going to come as a deceiving serpent. I'm going to get sneaky. And he begins to infiltrate via some destructive doctrines and some heresies, which Jesus hates. And in verse 14, the Lord says, but I have a few things against you. You have some, not all, but some. You got some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food. And uh, this is food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Uh, Balaam, you know that name? Balaam, who was Balaam? It's probably more accurately pronounced Balaam, but you know, I was an old Southern Baptist. We always said Balaam. So that's what I'm going to say. Balaam, his story is in Numbers uh, chapter 22 and, and following. He was a prophet. He was an ancient prophet. Uh, in fact, you may know of a prophecy that came from Balaam. 
He's the one who uttered a prophecy about a star that would arise from Jacob and a scepter out of Judah. And if you know the story of the, the star and the wise men following that star, that was the fulfillment of a prophecy that came from this guy, Balaam. But this prophet fell off the wagon. This, prophecy, uh, this prophet had a problem. He loved money. He was obsessed with, with coin. And so this problem, this idea, this notion of pastors who get rich off the ministry, this goes a long ways back. And it goes back to the book of Numbers. So this is a prophet for prophet. All right? Balaam. And he was running a wholesale business. He had a racket whereby he would negotiate with any deity uh, for the highest bidder. And there was a Moabite king by the name of Balak. And he approached old Balaam and he said, I tell you what, the Moabites hated the Israelites. He says, I want you, I'm going to give you a fat fee here, Balaam, and I want you to consult with Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and I want you to get him to curse his own people. And that way I'll be rid of them. And so Balaam took the money and he said, no problem. Well, there was a problem because you do not command Yahweh. Yahweh commands you. And so Balaam comes back to Balak in failure and he says, well, that didn't work, but I have an idea. I got got another idea. Here's what you do. You, you You don't go about it this way. Instead, you put a stumbling block. Uh, before the Israelites in the form of enticement. And what you're going to do is you're going to entice them to follow in the ways of the Moabites. You will get them to fall into idolatry. And then you will get them to, uh, to fall into adultery. And you will even get them to intermarry with the pagan Moabites. You're going to lure these Jewish guys in there into a lifestyle that, that is antithetical to Yahweh. And then he will get mad at them. And he will curse them. And then you're rid of your problem, the Israelites. And here's how idol worship worked in the ancient world. Okay, you would sacrifice. You'd go to the temple. You'd sacrifice meat to an idol, to a pagan god. And then... You would consume the meat that was sacrificed to that idol. And by consuming the meat, you were thereby communing with the false god. Okay? And then after you sacrificed and then you consumed the meat, every temple had prostitutes. And so these guys would have sexual relations with the temple prostitutes. And in doing so, you were sort of having relations with the idol. Gross. Disgusting. Okay? But that's how it worked. Here's how this played out with the Moabites and with the Israelites, uh, according to Balaam's plan here. The Moabite prostitutes would approach these Jewish guys in the land of Canaan there, and they would go, oh, boys. And uh, they'd say, we'd like to invite you to a little party. Now, what was so appealing to these Jewish men about engaging in this? What have they been doing for 40 years before they came into this land? They're wandering in the wilderness. What have they been eating all that time? There was something called manna. God would provide manna. What was manna? That was the bread from heaven. It was a provision of God Almighty. They would just walk outside their tent, and manna means what is it? Because it wasn't anything found on earth. God would just supernaturally deposit it there for them, and they could consume it. And it was their provision. He says, I'm going to provide for you. You don't need to rely on anybody else. I will be your provider, Jehovah Jireh. And there will always be manna every morning. Every morning. You don't store it. You 
don't keep it. You don't put it away. You just trust me. My manna is new every morning. The only problem is they ate this for 40 years. They got sick of it. They got tired of the manna burgers. They got tired of the manna loaf. They got tired of manna balls, all right? They got tired of the manna cotty, you know. And so these Moabite babes come up to them and they go, how'd you like to go to a barbecue? And they're like, yes, please. And so they come and they sacrifice to idols and then they gorge themselves on this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And I mean, it's just, oh, this is so great. It's red meat. Oh, it's awesome. And then they're, then they're full and they go, what now? And then these, these chicks say, well, now we have sex. And they're like, you're kidding. And that's how it begins. And they just compromise who they are. And so the philosophy here is if you can't curse them, corrupt them. And that's this philosophy that lives on in Pergamum. And in your notes, what you need to understand is believers, believers can't be cursed, but they can be corrupted. Satan cannot take your salvation, but he can ruin your testimony. He can absolutely corrupt you. And so these Pergamines come to the Christians there, and Satan has now revised his strategy, and he has enticed the church into the culture. And these Pergamene pagans, they say, you know, you don't have to give up your Christianity. You don't have to give up your faith. We, we won't even persecute you anymore. I mean, you do live here, right? I mean, this is your town. When in Pergamum, live as the Pergamenes. You can still be Christian, but, you know, you just bring your faith into the culture and you just adopt the ways of the culture. I mean, you want to you relate to everybody, don't you? You want to be relevant, don't you? You want to be approachable, don't you? And so they finagle. And these guys want acceptance from this Pergamene church. And they give in and they begin to dabble in the things of the world that are unpleasing to God. And Satan knows I can't have their soul, but I can steal their joy. I can ruin their reputation, their testimony. I can render them ineffective for the kingdom. And that's happening all over the place in the church today. And Jesus says in verse 15, so you also you have come, excuse me, also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now that should sound familiar to you. We've heard of the Nicolaitans. We talked about them in the letter uh, to the church at Ephesus. And Christ is already on record saying this is a teaching that he hates. He hates Nicolaitanism. This is where the very leaders of the church themselves were deceiving their own people to satisfy their own need. They were leading a flock to feed their own desires. Does that ever happen in churches today? Do leaders deceive the people so as to fulfill their own vice, their own passion? Happens all the time. And when a leader uses his followers to fulfill his own carnal needs, that is something that is morally reprehensible to God. And this was going on. This was going on. And there's a philosophy today that is taught that you just, you just need to do what makes you happy. You just fill that hole. You just fill that need. You want to you wanna, uh, be sexually active? Be sexually af- active. I mean, you live, in, you live in an age of grace. 
We're not under the law. You know, just do whatever you want. God has forgiven you. Times have changed. We're not old fogies. We're not stuck in the mud. Uh, You know, you want to sleep around, sleep around. You want to be gay, be gay. You want to pursue some new identity, do it. God wants you to be happy. Why wouldn't God want you to be happy? God wants you to be you. You know, is that true? Does God want me to be who I am? Listen to me. God wants you to be who he says you are. Not who you say you are. Not who the world says you are. So you are forgiven, but listen in your notes. Salvation is not a license to sin. Salvation is not a license to sin. What does Paul say in Romans 6? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. How can we, uh, who, died, uh, how, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Boy, isn't that true? Did God deliver you from sin? And yet when you go back to it, how pointless is that? It's like Lazarus. He comes out of the grave. What's the first thing Christ said? Loose him and let him go. Get those grave clothes off of him now. Why? Because he's not dead anymore. How much sense would it have made for Lazarus four days after he was raised from the dead to wander back in there and find those old stinky, rotting grave clothes and just wrap himself back up again? And yet that is exactly what we do every time we give in to sin. We've been delivered from it. We're not dead anymore. Don't act like a dead person. Be alive. And so now in your notes, you're going to see the Lord's command. And in verse 16, it says, he says, therefore, repent. This is the command of the Lord. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, them with the sword of my mouth. You know what, you know what Pergamum means? Pergamum, the name Pergamum, it means married. It means married. And here you've got a church the bride of Christ. They are married to Jesus. But at the same time, they act like they're married to the world. They're in a, they're in a spiritually polygamous relationship. And it's a violation. And it's wrong. And if these churches, which I believe that they do represent eras in history, Ephesus, that's the early church, obviously, the church that we read about in the book of Acts, Smyrna, Uh, I believe represents the first few centuries of the church when there was heavy, heavy persecution at the hands of Rome. Uh, And I believe that this church right here, Pergamum, represents an era where the church became diluted through compromise. How did we go from the early church, the apostolic church that we read about in the days of Paul, to uh, a church that is persecuted and purified to now a church that's just compromised? How did we get there? Well, um, if persecution, as in the case of Smyrna, was historically the best thing that could happen to a church, and I believe that it was, because it purified the church, brought them closer to Christ, thinned the ranks perhaps, but then they grew in their maturity, and then they multiplied and they thrived. They did that for two centuries, and after two centuries, Rome looks at this thing and says, we cannot put out this fire. We've tried, but it just keeps growing. And they decide, if you can't beat them, join them. Because you see what had happened over two centuries of the church's growth. It was Rome that deteriorated, split into two factions. You got got Rome on one side, and then you got another capital of the empire called Byzantium. 
And over here, you got a guy named Constantine. And over here, you got another emperor, kind of a co-emperor named Maxentius. And so they decide we're going to go to war to decide who owns it all, the whole empire. And so Constantine went to war. And there was a battle called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And the story goes that the night before that battle, old Constantine had a vision that his eyes were directed to the heavens and he looked up in the sky and he sees a giant cross and he hears the voice of God. That's what the story says. And the voice said, in this sign, conquer. Wasn't that nice of God to give Constantine a little boost of confidence before he goes into battle? Was it God? What happened? Well, he wins the battle. He defeats Maxentius, you see. And after that battle... Constantine decides uh, that he is going to follow the sign of the cross and he issues the Edict of Milan, a.k.a. the Edict of Toleration. And basically this said no more persecution of the church. No more persecution of Christianity. In fact, everybody is going to be mandated to become a Christian under threat of death. Is that good evangelism right there? You follow Christ or die. That doesn't work. That does not work. Nobody follows Christ that way. Nobody becomes an authentic follower of Jesus that way. What happened here is because he just, he just uh, issued that mandate, all the pagans continued their practices. They just slapped a Christian label on it. And overnight, pagan priests became Christian priests. And overnight, pagan temples became Christian churches. And overnight, all those statues, those idols of of Jupiter and Dionysius and Athena, they just put new name tags on them. And they became Peter, Paul, and Mary. And incidentally, that's how we got crappy folk music. (laughs) But the point is, the pagans continued their pagan activities. They just began to pray to the saints of the New Testament. What do we call that today? Is that happening? In Roman Catholicism, it is happening today. You just tour the Vatican. You just tour some of the, the, uh, the Catholic shrines that have been built over biblical sites in Israel, places like that. You know, it's a shame. Like, you, you want to see where, where the tomb of Christ was. You go through the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and you come out of there, and you want to shower, man, because of all the Mariolatry going on in there. And you might say, you might hear all this, you might say, well, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I don't pray to saints, Pastor Scott. I don't, I don't pray to Mary. I grew up mainstream evangelical, so that you're, you, know, you can't pin that idolatry stuff on me. Listen to me. Idolatry begins wherever there is compromise. It begins wherever there is compromise. And in the context of what we're studying today, the compromise is in sexual immorality. Is there compromise in that area in the church today? Absolutely. I can tell you that I've married a lot of young couples And before I marry them, I ask them to go through counseling. And often in premarital counseling, I've encountered the situation where they are living together or they are sleeping together. And when I discover that, and these are people that profess to be Christians, and we talk about their testimony so we confirm that they are indeed believers, that they're not going to be unequally yoked. But I find out they're living together. And I say, all right, listen to me. If I'm going to marry you, I need you to do something for me. And it's not going to be easy for you. But it's, it's, a, it's a necessity. You must come apart. You must come apart. You cannot be cohabiting 
together. I need you to stop your immorality, okay? You say you're both believers. You need to honor the Lord with your bodies, and you need to honor one another because you don't want to build your marriage on a foundation of disobedience. And you know what? I've never had one couple that didn't comply with that. And they would, they would agree. And they were always so grateful. I never had one couple come back to me later and they say, you know, we really wish that we kept shacking up before we made our vows. <laughs> Nobody ever said that. They were all very, very grateful because they felt that they had started off on the right foot and they were honoring the Lord. They made a commitment to be obedient because you're going to be obedient as a couple. You got to start out that way. Okay? And you might say, well, that's not me. I've never, I've never done that. But you got, you got other situations in the church. We've got, we've got married couples that are unfaithful to one another. We've got, married, we've got people that come to church here and they sing songs about Jesus. They open the Bible. They say amen and they go home and they view pornography. And that's the context that we're looking at. There's sexual immorality going on in Pergamum. You say, well, that's not me. I don't look at porn. What movies do you enjoy? What TV shows do you enjoy? What novels do you like to read? Is there anything in there that would be displeasing to God in this milieu, in this vein, huh? I'm telling you what, streaming services today offer programming that a decade ago would have made a lost person blush. And it's become mainstream. And there's no any kind of network sensor kind of thing going on these days. They get away with it, so everything's filled with it. And it's real easy when it's become normalized in society for even believing Christians to slip into that and to just watch it and have no thought whatsoever. And so we need to be careful about that. And he says, repent. What does that mean? The word repent is metanoeo. It means what? In your notes, change your mind. Change your mind. This means to say what I've been thinking is wrong the thing that I've been making excuses about is inexcusable and I'm not going to do it anymore. I need to stop fighting God. I need to stop running from God. I need to stop making excuses up and I need to start trusting God with every decision in my life. And when you change your mind, your life will change. Your life will change. Romans 12, 2, this is what it's talking about when it says don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern we need discernment. You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? You want to know the will of God? How many of you are, you'd like to know the will of God? Change your thinking. Trust the Lord. When you do that, it's going to change your life. Now we're going to wrap this up here with the conqueror's compensation. The conqueror's compensation. Look at verse 17. This is how he ends every letter with this line right here. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then he says, to the one who conquers, I will. All that phrase is consistent in every letter. And he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. Okay, now who's the conqueror? We know who we've established who that is in every letter. The conqueror is not some super Christian. It's not the person who gets it right every time. It's anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who is authentically born again. 1 John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you put your faith in him, guess what? This is you. 
You're a conqueror. That means that he will give you something. What? He will give some of the hidden manna. What in the world is that? In your notes, the hidden manna is provision from Christ. It's provision from We've talked about manna already tonight, haven't we? The Israelites got manna. When they were wandering in the wilderness, Jesus said, or the Lord said, Yahweh said, I will provide for you. You don't need to worry about what your, uh, where your sustenance is going to come from. You just, you just wake up every morning. Manna will be waiting for you. It'll be, it's new every morning. Well, you're a Christian. Guess what? What does it say about Jesus? His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. You know what that means? You rely on him. He will satisfy you every day. When you rise from your bed, you don't need to be sustained or satisfied by anything that the world has to offer. You don't need to give in to carnal desires. You don't need to give in to the temptations of the world. You have enough. And in your notes, when times are tough, he is enough. Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness. He said, you hungry? Looking out for you hungry right there, Lord. He didn't call him Lord. You looking hungry, Jesus? Why don't you turn these stones to bread? What did Jesus say? He had a little Bible study with the devil. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We have sustenance that the world knows nothing about. John 4, the disciples, they find Christ. He had been with the, the, uh, the Samaritan woman. They were concerned for him because he, was, he, was, he had not eaten. They said, you need to eat something. What did he say? He said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so they said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Am I bringing him something? What's happening here? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To walk with God is hidden manna. You walk with him every day, he will provide for you. The world doesn't know anything about that. The world can't experience that. They're like, you need more. Don't you want some of this? Nope, don't need that. Don't you want to drink this? Nope. Don't you want to smoke this? Nope. Don't you want to snort this? Nope. Don't you want to sleep with that person? No. I've got enough. And his name is Jesus. And then in verse 17, he said, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is this white stone? Well, this in your notes, this is a white stone with a new name, and it is your identity in Christ. A couple ways to interpret that white stone, just so you know. In the ancient world, uh, a white stone was given to a slave granted freedom. When you would set a slave free, you'd give them a white stone. Let me ask you a question. When you trusted Christ, were you granted freedom? You were. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. There's another way to interpret that white stone. In the ancient world, a white stone was given to the victor in gladiatorial combat. All right, so if you're Maximus and you come off of that arena floor and you're the victor, they would give you a white stone and the white stone would grant you access to all the games at the Colosseum. Let me ask you, when you trusted Christ, were you granted access? You were. You were granted access to Jesus Christ, which means you've got access to heaven because he is the door, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. But I think the most interesting thing about this new name 
is, uh, about this stone, rather, is the new name written on it. Because that, my friends, is your identity. It's got a name, and it's a new name. It's not the old name that you had. Your old name uh, is not written on this stone. You got a new one. Everywhere in Scripture, God is renaming people, left and right. Gideon, I'm going to call you Jerobel. Abram, I'm going to call you Abraham. Sarah, I'm going to call you Sarah. Excuse me, Sarai, I'm going to call you Sarah. Peter, you were once Simon, now you are Petros. All right? Let's not forget this one. Saul, now you are Paul. Saul meant prayed for. Paul means little one. You are mine. You're my little one. You're my own child. Your old name was sinner. Now you're a son. You're a daughter. You belong to a most high God. This is a new identity. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put, off the new, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Are you a new creation in Christ? Live like it. Don't live according to the old identity. You know that old story about the baby elephant, right? The ba- oh, go ahead. I got permission. Good. Okay. She said I could tell you. All right. Well, there's, there's an old story about the baby elephant at the circus. And when that was just a little bitty elephant, they would keep it in place with a little flimsy rope and they would tie it to a stake in the ground. They'd hammer that stake down. That little elephant couldn't move, couldn't stray, couldn't wander off. As that elephant grew in might and power into a large, formidable beast. You know how they kept that mighty beast in place? With the same old flimsy rope and the same little stake. And with one kick, he could have dislodged that and been free. And yet, he stayed there. And Christians today forget who they are. They forget what the Lord has made them. And they remain in bondage needlessly. Even though they've been set free. Even though they're a new creation. Even though they are alive. They act as though they're dead. In chains of sin. But if we understand who we are. You know, he says, he says, that we know the condition of our own soul. We've got a new name here. The one who receives it knows, he says. The one who receives it knows. Because it says that we know, that means that we can dispense with any notion that says, you know, I can't have assurance about my salvation. I just don't know for sure if I'm really saved. Listen to me. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can know that you know that you know that you belong to him. Be at peace. Rest in that, but walk in that. You're a conqueror, not a compromiser. So let's be conquerors together, amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon these conquerors in this room tonight, God. We don't want to compromise. We don't want to waffle. 
We want to live for you. We want to be strong. We want to be who you've called us to be. Let's not follow the example of the Pergamene church, God. Let's be victors. Let's be overcomers. Grant it, Lord. Give us the knowledge and the power to live that out every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.